So over pancakes and bacon yesterday, we had a family discussion about uh, the difference between the economy of exchanging Christmas gifts and the economy of, exchange, of, uh, of an Easter egg hunt. Have you ever uh, considered the difference between the two? But we talked about it in our Saturday morning ritual of pancakes and bacon and came up with some interesting thoughts and ideas. So prepare to have your minds blown. <laughs> so consider a Christmas gift exchange and how that works. Um, each present is personally given and received. There's a to and a from label outside of each package, right? Uh, and, and so that gift is a connecting point between two people. Secondly, the Christmas gift exchange and the traditions around it have this way of bringing everyone together. That's kind of the, one of the main purposes of, of this tradition is that it, like, it's something that we all rally around, gather for, come together for. And it's kind of supporting of the bonds that mean a lot to us, our family and friends. Uh, third thing about the Christmas gift exchange is that when all the presents have been unwrapped, um, there's at least a chance that those gifts will lead to collaboration and sharing. Right? In an ideal world, when there's some maturity in the room, there'll be sharing, there'll be collaboration once all the gifts are unpacked. Now, consider the economy of an Easter egg hunt. And now the Damiani family will continue to do this. You're invited next year on Easter afternoon. We'll do this as a family, so I'm not anti-Easter egg hunts, okay? But... Number one, the Easter eggs are not personally exchanged. There's no to or from label on any of those multicolored uh, eggs. Um, It's finders keepers is really the label. That's that's the only label. There's just raw resources out there to take, right? It's not exchanged. Um, Secondly, there's a good chance that this tradition may set child against child. (laughs) And even parent against parent, depending on what's inside the Easter egg. That there'll be competition in tears. Thirdly, when all the Easter eggs have been found, each child goes into their corner where they will be alone with their spoils. <laughs> so, Christmas gift exchange, in an ideal world, of course, a celebration of relationships, and it's collaborative and it's personal. The Easter egg hunt can be a celebration of accumulative value and isolation, okay? And you're still all invited next year to our Easter egg hunt. <laughs> Now, we're progressing through an Eastertide series called For the Life of the World. For the Life of the World. And we're asking the question, what is our salvation in Jesus Christ actually for? And we're seeing how everything sad is coming untrue in different parts of our lives through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, who loves us. And we're exploring ways that we're all called called to participate in the project of renewing the world under the lordship of the resurrected Jesus. Now, God created our work to be given and exchanged as gifts. No matter what you're doing Monday through Friday, whether you're in school preparing for work or whether you're in the workplace doing a job you love or doing a job you don't love, all of our work, even our volunteer work, even the volunteer work that was done this morning, um, God created them to be exchanged as gifts, for them to be relational touch points that would bond us to each other. 
It's a really beautiful idea that in some ways Monday through Friday can be like Christmas from the perspective of those who have been made new in Christ, that we are giving and exchanging gifts to one another and uh, doing so as a family. Um, But some of us are tempted to approach our work like so many others do, and that is as survivors and value accumulators. We take what we can get, we do what we have to do, and eventually we go to our corners with our accumulated eggs and we enjoy them in the presence of ourselves and anyone else that we care to invite. We enjoy our spoils alone. That's the temptation. That's how so many people live, and that is how we are tempted to live as well. Now, as we've been learning throughout this series, we can either view our world with urgency and fear, or we can view our world with patience and love. And as we talked about in the first message in this series, the Lord has called us to live as exiles, where we acknowledge that we're not quite at home yet, neither are we in a panic, but we're actually sowing seeds of hope and love and resurrection through the power of Jesus with a view that future generations will reap from this work, will reap from this investment. So we take a long-term approach, neither being completely at home, neither being in a panic. Now, our view of the world, whether it's a view dominated by fear that the world is coming to an end soon, that there's a crisis ahead, or that it's reigned by Jesus and that Jesus will actually make all things sad come untrue, that will shape how we create value and how we exchange value. We can either create and exchange value as gift givers and receivers or create and exchange value as survivors who have to get enough, scrape by, go to your corners and live out your life without going broke. If in our daily lives we see no hope of a happy ending, no hope of the sad things coming untrue, that makes perfect sense that we would live as practical Darwinians, as survivors, living by our wits in the midst of chaos. Three observations about survivors. This is the temptation for us. Survivors, number one, stockpile. I may have enough now, but I probably won't have enough later, so I hoard in order to ensure my own survival. Survival. Since everything depends upon me, I assume there will be no lucky breaks, and therefore I won't give anyone else a break either. I can't be generous because I cannot expect generosity in return. And because I can, uh, more and more I'll do whatever it takes to stockpile the things I need before it's too late. So we stockpile time, money, talents, skills, network, degrees, and we go into our corner and we protect them rather than exchange them and give them as gifts for the life of the world. So survivors stockpile, survivors, survi- survivors exploit, they exploit. I believe I am entitled to a comfortable lifestyle without having to do hard work. So I'm constantly looking for ways to benefit from the hard work and creativity of others without having to pay for them. So this is finders keepers just in our work. And maybe you are an artist and someone has tried to freeload off of your creativity because it's hard to put a value on your work. So they're like, hey, you just do it for free, right? You'll wordsmith for free. You make images for free. Support my project with your beauty. Maybe someone has tried to do that. Um, So when you're exploiting, the sole reason that we work is to survive by bringing home the paycheck. I invest the minimum amount of effort and passion in my job, assuming it has no value beyond the survival it promises through a paycheck and a promotion. So survivors 
um, stockpile, they exploit, and thirdly, they isolate. In survival mode, every relationship is utilitarian. My warm friendliness towards coworkers, and especially supervisors, is a Darwinian adaptation, and nothing more. Whatever it takes to survive, right? No offense, but I'm in community with you, so as long as you're useful to me. And at the end of the day, there's no team, there's no we. The meaning of my work is solely personal and individualistic. My work serves me in the same way that my iPhone serves me. It is essentially about me getting what I need and want. So this is a temptation because so many people live this way, and we can be conformed very easily to this way of viewing our work. So the Lord calls us to love instead of surviving. Stockpiling, exploiting, and isolating, it makes total sense apart from Christ and his resurrection. But what if everything sad is coming untrue? What if there is a better and different and richer and truer story that we are living in than the one of survival? Where everything sad comes untrue through the resurrection of Jesus. What if my survival depends not on living by my wits in the chaos, but instead that I am guaranteed to live forever through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead of surviving, I could give. I could become a gift giver again instead of a stockpiler. Instead of fearing, I could love. I want to tell you about a young urban church that was planted in a major city. The church's members lived in a highly stratified culture in which status was the currency of choice. And people in this city, they had to, they had to sweat it out and they had to angle hard for their status. And then once they obtained it, they were like a child in the corner with all of their Easter eggs. They wielded it for their purposes and they kept it to themselves rather than investing it and giving it for the life of the world. This survivalist zeitgeist infected this new church and it was filled with jealousy and strife and it was filled with factions. In fact, during Holy Communion, which is the meal that Jesus instituted to be a sign of the unity between all believers, these factions wouldn't eat together. Some went hungry, some got drunk. And in other words, when people came to communion uh, in this new church plant, they came as survivors rather than as Christians. Whenever surviving becomes your primary objective, you've forgotten God's beautiful story and the meaning of your contribution to it. The church we're talking about is the church of Corinth. We have a lot to learn from this church. They were caught up in a story of status building, getting it, using it, flaunting it. And their story, this story of status building defined their creative service, how they created value, how they exchanged value. It motivated them to survive rather than contribute freely out of love. This story objectified people, made them into objects that were just useful or not useful. Either low-status status members that were discardable um, and high, or a high-status member that was a hero. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. So Paul had to write a letter to this church, and we're going to look at one part of this letter. Um, he tells them of the better story in this letter. He's like, no, 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 no. This story of status building is not the true story. It's a false narrative. And it needed to be replaced by the good, true, and beautiful story of Jesus renewing all things through the resurrection. It's a story of gift. It's a story of generosity. It's a story of giving. In which God made the world, and then when creation had fallen into sin and decay, 
He loved the world so much that he gave his only son to redeem it, to fill every crack, to repair every hole, to heal every illness, to wipe away every tear. That's the true story. It's the story the Corinthians were living in. It's the story that we are living in as well. Paul called the Corinthians back to work in language reminiscent of Jeremiah 29, which called people to live as exiles, to take the long view, to plant and build and seek the welfare of the city. He also called the Corinthian Christians to plant and build for the life of the world. Today's New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians 3, a small excerpt. I invite you to look there. And we're going to look at two things here about work in 1 Corinthians 3. Two points of teaching that Paul gives to restore the Corinthians to the true story. Number one... God ennobles our work by joining it with others' work. God ennobles our work by joining it with others' work. Inasmuch as gifts around Christmas morning connect us to other, others and our friends, our family or our friends, our work is supposed to do the same thing. And God actually designed it that way so that our work is a relational touch point where we are giving and exchanging gifts for the life of the world. This is um, what he argues in the first half of the chapter. If Paul had been swayed by practical Darwinianism of the Corinthians, he might have commended them for their factionalism. He could have seized the opportunity for the church to rally around himself rather than Apollos in order to ensure his long-term financial survival. But instead, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for this factionalism, and he writes this, looking in verse 3 of chapter 3. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos waters, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So consider this, instead of seeing his work as solely personal or individualistic, Paul believed that God ennobled his work by joining it with that of Apollos and Cephas and all the other Christians who contributed to the health and welfare of the Corinthian church. Through God's infinite love, Paul and Apollos were partners in the gospel, and the Corinthian church was the fruit of their collaboration. Now this work, this kind of collaboration, isn't just limited to church planting. This is garden imagery, and it should remind us not only of Jeremiah 29, but also of Genesis 1 through 1 and 2, and the creation mandate that God gave to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Whether we're cleaning toilets, or writing code, or creating neighborhood dinners, or teaching children, or creating art, we're part of a giant collaborative effort to love our broken world. Everything we make, even if you don't enjoy your job, everything we make and do is a relational touch point. We plant a seed. Someone else waters it. And then God makes it flourish as part of his larger creation to reconstitute Eden. As such, when we work, we're more like members of a teeming family with tons of gifts to give and receive. Much more like a teeming family than we are like cogs in a vast machine where we give impersonal bits of work for impersonal bits of compensation that we can then hoard and protect. 
So every exchange is personal. And if every exchange is personal, we will be as careful in giving and receiving our work as we are in giving and receiving gifts on Christmas morning. Think about all the ways that you think about, ah, what should, you know what I mean? Getting the right gift for this person. There's thought and energy and love that goes into that decision. You have to really think about it. And you're not going to give a gift that you know isn't going to love someone else. You're not going to screw them over. You're not going to get even through a gift unless something has gone wrong. Think about this. Paul says in verse 10, let each take care how he builds upon it. Just as you take care how you give gifts, let each one take care how he builds upon the work of Jesus Christ, no matter what we're doing. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has work that begets and sustains ours. And so he reigns over every transaction and exchange in which his people take part. Our collaborative work is now under his authority. And it is no longer every man for himself. So instead of being driven further and further into isolation, as is pictured in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, we grow closer and closer to one another as the body of Christ, bound together by the Holy Spirit, as we partner with other believers for the life of the world. So God ennobles our work by joining it with the work of others. But then God does something else. He ennobles our work by joining it with his. And we need that just as much. God is going to join our work, whatever type of work we do, and join it with his. In the first half of 1 Corinthians 3, we looked at how God joins our work with others. In the second half, Paul goes on to point to how our work is joined with God. In his book, The Three Signs of a Miserable Job, Pat Lencioni argues that people hate their work and quit their jobs for three reasons. Number one, anonymity. A lack of relationships with bosses, coworkers, and clients. Number two, immeasurability. Ongoing certainty about whether they're actually doing good work. The third reason that people hate their jobs is irrelevance. A sense that their work doesn't matter to anybody. Now, Lencioni's point is that good managers are people who connect the dots for their employees such that they know that their work is beneficial and makes a difference in the lives of real people. When someone does this for us, we work harder. We enjoy work. We, we, we will do grueling work. We will expend ourselves to our very end if we have this idea that our work really matters to people and that it's going to make a difference because it will fill our lives with and our work with meaning and purpose. So we will work very hard. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12... And following, Paul helps the Corinthians connect the dots regarding their work. Read with me. He says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Think about that. Isn't that good news? Well, Paul is saying that the work that we do now has value to God's eternal project. And this is why God tests it, because shoddy work can't survive in the kingdom of God. It doesn't fit. So he tests our work, and he presses on it, and he looks for the good and the true and the beautiful work, whether or not anyone else noticed it. No matter what sector we work in, the Lord says that he will test our work and Make it part of the mosaic of his good, true, and beautiful kingdom if it passes the test. 
it will be part of an infinitely beautiful project, an amazingly hopeful idea and experience. This is what the Lord will do, even if our work is hidden. I want to tell you about a story about a bus driver in northern Alabama. Bethany Jenkins um, tells the story. She's a writer in New York, and she discovered a story of a woman named Margaret Lacey. Um, she says this, Margaret has been driving school buses for almost 20 years. For eight years, she has had the same 40-minute, 12-stop route with 65 children. Um, <clears throat> we have a good school system, Margaret says, but I had the roughest route, a lot of latchkey kids without much discipline at home. She now drives a bus for children with special needs. Um, and, uh, and that means that she has a new route, it takes her twice as long, and she only picks five kids up and takes them to school. Margaret's work does not seem to matter much to the world. It isn't powerful, it isn't strategic, it isn't lucrative. She'll probably never run for political office or speak at a national conference. She'll probably ne never be featured in a national magazine. I know being a bus driver isn't glamorous, she admits. Over the years, she has driven more than 300 children, seeing many of these children grow up. Um, and Bethany writes about how she was kind of the functional confessional for these kids. They would just tell her, here's all the bad things I did today. And, um, and she would listen to them day after day. So today, she'll go to the market and hear someone joyfully call out, Hey, Mrs. Lacey! The influence of her faithful presence, through, though imperceptible at first, has grown like a mustard seed in her community. I don't know why, she wonders, rem remembering a troubled girl she once drove, but she'd tell me what she'd do wrong every day. I'd pray for her, but I'd always think, there's no hope for this child. Years later, Margaret got a call. It was her, Margaret smiles. I almost fell out of my chair. I want you to know that this girl said that I'm going to church, I'm married, and I have a baby. And Margaret says that phone call was worth any trouble any child gave me. Margaret Lacey is a good example of how God ennobles our work with joining it with his own. Instead of being driven by fear and urgency, she's motivated by love. And God is calling us to be people who are faithfully present in our work listening to the needs of our neighbors and taking satisfaction in doing good whether or not the world considers it important. More often than not, the way our work changes the world is imperceptible except through time-lapse photography. We don't even know exactly the impact our work is having except over time. It's imperceptible in the moment. It becomes known over, over time, over the generations. Maybe some of us drive buses, Maybe we sort laundry, maybe we develop web content. Whatever the case, let, let's let our studies and our work and our collaboration, whether it be alone or whether it be with people, be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord because our labors in the Lord are not in vain. All that driving, all that sorting, all that coding, all that studying is not in vain, my friends. Jesus will keep the best of it in his consummated kingdom, and we will see the results of our labor, some in this life, mostly, when Jesus makes all things new. So yes, I want to say that even if we do this, there will still be survivalists in our workplace. There will still be people who are out, it, out for themselves. There will still be people who are hoarding. And we will be negatively <laughs> impacted by this. That is why it's so important for us to take to heart Jesus' promise in Luke 12 when he says this, Fear not, little flock, 
For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't let the false promises and the false condemnations discourage you in your work. God promises not only to provide for us, but to give us an eternal inheritance that is 100% guaranteed. Even if everything around us collapses, our Father will still give his children the kingdom. Therefore, we must measure our success against his standards rather than how the world thinks about our work. For some of us, it just may be time to step back from the criticisms and the flattery that has been fueling our work up to this point. I love the way Paul concludes his chapter when he says in verse 21, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All is gift. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You see how Paul wraps everything up. He says, all this labor on your behalf, whether it's from me or from Apollos or Cephas, it's a gift to you. It's a gift to you. It wasn't a lobbying effort. It wasn't a tribe-building effort. It wasn't some manipulative game building status for certain people. It was a gift. It was freely given. It was given in trust. It was given for you and for the life of the world. When we see that everything related to our work is a gift, it will revolutionize the way we create and labor and exchange. We can receive God's gifts, including the gift of others' labor on our behalf, and we can pass them onto others for the life of the world. Who needs to isolate themselves when everything is a gift? Who needs to isolate themselves or fight to survive when we've been given all things? And then Paul says, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Just as God gave Jesus for the life of the world and he resurrected and rewarded Jesus on Easter, let us also pour out our lives in creative service for the life of the world because God will clothe us and God will feed us. God will someday give us the kingdom as we freely give of ourselves, as we go to the cross, carrying our cross with Jesus and give the gift of our labor for the life of the world, in collaboration with others, and as part of God's larger project to renew all things. The Lord will take care of his flock, and he will take care of you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.